teaching for tomorrow in the climate of today. Inspiring educators globally. Never stop learning. Never stop growing. The best teachers teach from the heart. Welcome to Powerful Pedagogy. Powerful, powerful, Hi, and welcome back to another episode of The Powerful Pedagogy. I have with me today Nicola Robinson, who has been a progressive early childhood educator with over 20 years experience. We started out as young teachers together, right? And it's been quite the journey, us each sort of taking our own journey in in this field. And Nicola is just going to share a little bit about her journey and and sort of what working in the public schools and things that she's seeing in the, you know, charter school sector and just sort of how that is impacting teachers all over. And I'm sure, you know, again, we'll say that I'm sure there are teachers who are not experiencing this and are having like the most amazing time and finding ways around the system. But I do think I wanted to do this particular episode to speak to those teachers who may be facing burnout or may be just wondering like how they could get the most out of their practice. So welcome, Nicola. Thank you so much, Ms. Lynette. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So we started out as young teachers, went to college, right, together, and our journeys look very different. Will you just talk a little bit about why do you want to become a teacher? What made you want to become a teacher? So becoming a teacher was actually my backup plan. I started out in nursing, wanting to follow in my mother's footsteps as a nurse. My goal was to become a pediatric nurse. I always knew I wanted to work with children in some way, shape, or form. However, once I started getting into the meat and potatoes of the nursing courses where I had to actually look at pictures of injured children and things like that, I realized that, no, maybe not. You know, it was much more than I could handle yeah. even just looking at, at the pictures in a book. So uh, I went to the next calling that I was attracted to, which was teaching, which was education. I'm originally from Jamaica and education just had a, a really different experience with it than what I've noticed that maybe persons who don't come from countries where education is not a right. So um, early on, education was a privilege. Uh, growing up, parents have to pay for books and pay for uniforms and pay school fees. So it was often a source of pride for parents to have children who were finishing school or could they continue to pay for that. So a child often carried the pride of the family on their backs with being able to finish school. So, you know, growing up with that um, relationship with education, becoming a teacher felt very, you know, lofty and felt, you know, great of me to continue in the journey of what I had been given and also being able to give back. Yeah. So, that was, that and was you said, you know, you saying like, you know, education, depending on where you are, just remembering those things, you know, education is not necessarily a right for all children globally, but that for some children, it is actually a privilege. Yes. And I remember talking to you prior to this and I said, you know, Nicola, sometimes I feel like I'm in this little bubble 
right? Yes. I'm in my private school bubble. And, you know, you were sharing some stories, which we're going to get into about sort of your experience, not in private schools and what you were seeing. And I was just like, I, I think people need to hear this as well. Like we need to hear all the creative, progressive, you know, meaningful ways that we can empower our practice. But I think we also need to balance that with the actual reality of what is happening in classrooms. Yeah. So I remember us, you know, starting off, going on our way. You spent so much time in that in a classroom, building your classroom, like over yes. 20 years. Yes. Um, and what was that like? I had a wonderful experience in starting out in education. Um, I started working at a school in Brooklyn and the principal gave me my own program where um, I was working with kindergarten students um, who had come in and had, um, after their assessments, were a little behind the rest. So I would pull them in small groups and work with them on language learning and, you know, just basic skills to build them up. And it was a wonderful experience. In my first time in the classroom, I could see my impact right away. So once I was in college and finished my program, I was very excited to go out on my own. But again, not understanding that every educational environment is not the same because the school that I was in was well-funded. It had a wonderful leader at the helm. Students were so supported. So I thought, you know, going off that this is what I would be going into. So it was a rude awakening <laughs> to go out into other environments and realize that this is not the case. My, my learning in BMCC and Brooklyn College was very child-centered, which is what I took with me, um, very much around, you know, educational philosophies from like Piaget, child in the environment, and really, you know, center-based learning. So going into public sector, that's what I brought with me, I thought, you know. So from the initial, it was a fight to have that kind of environment. but. It was what spoke to me and I made sure you achieved I, it. Yeah. yeah. I found ways to implement it. I would set up my classroom, make sure I had all the centers, the reading center, writing center, you know, math center, play center. So even in the more restrictive world of public education where academics is pushed over child development appropriate child development, I would say, I found the space to to bring that in because it was what I needed in order to be effective and bring joy to my students and for myself. And so, you know, along the way, I had some pushback around it, but I was very good at the work that I did with my students. And so I was able to have that space. I remember there was a, a school where I would play music for the students during the day. And I remember a leader came in and she was like, well, why are you playing music? And I said, well, you know, it's the children like it. And she said, well, that's not part of the curriculum. So you have to turn that off. Wow. Yeah. And I was stunned. You know, it was just something that was like second nature to me to incorporate something that was, you know, stimulating and soothing and brought joy to the children. But here I had a leader telling me, well, that's not part of the curriculum, so you need to turn that off. So wow. that was one of the first interactions I had with just, I don't even know what to call it, you know, but just, just a disassociation with educational institution from appropriate practices around, you know, for, for child development. And this was me teaching a kindergarten class at that time. Wow. 
And I know for many teachers, that might sound so foreign, right? Like I know me personally, I play music, soothing, soft music in the background almost every day. And I've Mm -hmm. never had that admin that would would come in and say, well, this is not part of the curriculum Mm -hmm. or why are you, or even question, Mm -hmm. why are you doing this? If anything, I've had admin that would come in and support it. Like, oh, wow, it's such a, such a great vibe in here, you know? Mm -hmm. So, and I remember talking to you in the early years and even though you would sort of come up, face these obstacles, like it never thwarted you, like it never stopped you, like it never stopped you from advocating from what you felt these children would benefit from and what they needed. Yeah. Gratefully, the parents were always my biggest advocates because they uh, could see my intention. The children are also um, my biggest advocates. I have a wonderful relationship with all my students. Um, They look forward to coming to my classroom I did a lot of project-based learning, which I brought to most environments that I was in, where other teachers picked it up and it became, you know, they began to see how productive it was and how the students loved it and how the parents loved it. So, you know, being staunch in my belief on on what was best practices for my young learners, also I was able to influence the environments that I was in in a positive way. So that also continued to give me, you know, reaffirmation of the work that I was doing. And again, at the end of the day, when the children are progressing in a way that can be measured, as it is in public school, you cannot deny, you know, the work that I'm doing, even as I'm doing it in a way that's more child-centered than is being encouraged. Yeah. And then, fast forward, I remember sort of, during the pandemic, talking to you and you telling me something that shocked me, which was you were done. Yep. yep. You were done with sort of the classroom and the politics and just all of that. And I remember feeling so sad that those children were going to miss out, you know, even though you, you've come back, you found another sort of way to them. But I just, but I just remember how I felt when you told me that, like, oh my gosh, and what do you mean? And, and, but this is your thing and look how many children you've impacted and, you know, why? So I know that there are quite a few teachers and I know a handful myself who, you know, during the pandemic just decided that the classroom wasn't for them, you know, not impacting students and working, inspiring children wasn't for them, but the classroom wasn't for them. And I would love for you to just share just sort of what was going through your head at that time. Yeah, I love the way that you you frame that because oftentimes when persons that are, that are educators say that, you know, I'm, I'm tired, I, I don't want to teach anymore, it's that part about the classroom it's not for them. I love the work of educating children. It, it's like a symbiotic relationship. I learned so much from working with children. However, especially during the pandemic, the classroom was then you know transferred to the digital world, and it was just so overwhelming. the The level of work that you were expected to do to keep children engaged in just a way that was unnatural, you know, to them and to yourself. Um, You know me very well. I'm very much an analog girl in a digital world. (laughs) You know, I love technology for all that it brings. However, working with the age group that I work with, 
I just I'm in reverence of actual nature and hands-on learning and and how many ways that we can bring that into the classroom as possible with a small digital footprint. So yeah. having to be engaged on a everyday basis, having to video myself, having to put in so much paperwork and document everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, every conversation, like it was just overwhelming. I was getting anxiety, getting up to come in front of the computer. I was getting headaches. And so it just, I wasn't feeling good anymore. And I just could not, I could not abide. I could not do it. And so I made just a very, you know, I want to say impulsive, but I didn't really think I had a choice in order for me to keep my joy and my sanity. Yeah. resign from I work. I was teaching third grade at the time and actually led me to take on a teaching position as a pod teacher where I had four students. Um, I remember that. <laughs> yes, and two third that, graders. Yeah. And ironically, that gave me back my joy of why I was an educator. I was able to create a curriculum to support them it was based on what they loved. It was an extension of what they were doing online. The parents just let me have Adam. And it was just an amazing experience. I was just like, wow, this is what and teaching for, is. for people that may not know what a pod teacher was, and I know I got offers to do that too. A pod teacher is literally like, like two families or a couple families will band together with their children and you basically go in and supplement what their children are doing or teach those children, especially because we were keeping them out of the school. So you had four children. Yes, I had four (laughs) students and it was mixed ages, which also gave me an opportunity to broaden a way that I could have cross-age students interact I didn't even know I had that skill set and, you know, which is something that's practiced in Montessori. I'd had some experience with that during my teacher training. And so it was just it was just wonderful. And I said, you know, if I'm to work as an educator, this is how I want to work. I want to be able to take children out and take a walk. I want, you know, the experience of the classroom to be coming from outside as much as possible. I wanted to just be responsive to them. I wanted to be where we can play music. And I make them work. And there's yeah. still accountability. And yeah. there's still expectations around your academic growth. You know, we're still following the the best practices and core curriculum expectations, but we're doing it in a holistic, child-centered way, you know, that responds to them at their age and at their level. And it just felt amazing, amazing. So yeah. it was a positive, even in the negative. And and that inspired you like, well, hey, well, maybe I could come back into the classroom, but just in a different capacity. Yes. As so a now, substitute teacher. Yes. So what I did when I came back, I actually decided to take a lesser position. So I actually took a position at a friend school as a teacher assistant to just take a breath and refresh and um, not just, have to be responsible for planning yes. <laughs> every little minute detail of the day. Yeah. Yes. And, and also just be able to reflect on my practice 
and and see what that looks like when I'm not in the lead. See, you know, what the classroom environment looks like again and be in a space where centers are promoted, where there is some autonomy to be creative. I hadn't been in that space in a very, very long time. And being in a private school environment, you know that you have more of that autonomy. Yes. And so I hadn't had that relationship with education. So going to a private institution, it, it was wonderful. And then it also made me sad because, again, it just highlights this idea, like I said, of privilege around persons who are paying, you know, for a private education for their children versus the students in the public school that I've been servicing for almost all my career and what those environments don't look like. You yeah. know, why yeah. they get 15, 20 minutes of play and that's it for the day, no matter what the weather is. Um, I and, and as you said, like I then went into subbing because I was um, working to recreate what my relationship with teaching could look like. You know, where are those environments where I could just, you know, work with small groups and expound upon what they were learning and support teachers um, in creating a better environment. And. This has probably has been the most shocking experience for me as a seasoned mm. educator to see the environments that young learners are learning in. I went into a school where the students could not go outside for the day because the older children were testing. So the policy, Wait, what do you mean? Like they couldn't, there was no they, recess? There was no recess. They could not go out to play. So once a year, schools take PSSA testing. And the policy um, of many of these private schools is, I guess, because the, the, the thing is to create a calm environment for the testing students and no chances of noise on the outside. No children are allowed to have recess. And this is for one week. Wow. One week. Wow. So I was in a school that had 30 kindergarten students, 30, with one teacher. and for one week, 30 kindergarten students with one teacher were not allowed to go outside and play in the springtime. And so I, I, I got into it with the leader. I said, this is inhumane. This is absolutely inhumane. So, you know, seeing things like that and just seeing the lack of training for many teachers around building community, around center learning. It's and just early childhood development. Yes. Like it would be, yes. it does, it seems almost inhumane, criminal, yes. like to not allow a child, any human being, just some outside time, yep. some fresh air time yep. as a break in their day. And I think, you know, talking to you since you've been a substitute teacher, it's been incredibly eye-opening to me as well. And like I said, I'm like, I feel like I'm in my little bubble. Like this mm -hmm. feels so and sounds so foreign to me. And I'm sure some other teachers like, but we need to hear this. We need to hear. And I, we need to hear what's not being said. Yes. Yes. That, that right there, what's not being said, because it's just very confusing because there's all these messages around education and, you know, you, you, you hear about funding and you hear about, you know, a push for literacy. However, in 2023, I'm in classrooms where students don't even have a library. They don't even have books in the classroom. They don't even have a, a beautiful library space in their classroom environment. They, they can't just get up and go get books. 
you know, I'm in environments where they don't have independent reading time. That's not something that's taught. Like there's just such a gap between the message that is being pushed and the reality that is happening that it is absolutely shocking. Absolutely shocking. Can't the classroom teachers advocate for these things in their classroom? Like books or like, you know, like, I don't know, like a stipend per year on these things? Or is that not the possible Well, like, that's a good question. So what I'm learning is that, first of all, you know, every school is an independent entity just about. So working in the Philadelphia school district, you will go to one school that may be better funded than another within a 10 to 15 minutes radius mm, of each other, okay, right? Okay. And so if you get a stipend, you might get a $200 gift card at the beginning of the year. Now think about what can $200 do for 25 to 30 students. So I, I'm not sure what is the level of advocacy that teachers have around wanting a better environment, um, wanting to create a better environment, and, and also the training that they're right. being provided with to create that environment. Because I was speaking to another educator, I said, why is there such a, a, a disparity in how certain teachers understand best practices while others don't, right? So we even have to go back to our, uh, our teacher training programs and where does a teacher do their internship? What are they seeing yeah. as their, you know- Their model, the, exactly. Their model of what best practices look like. So it's, it's, it's a multi-layered beast, but at the end of the day, children are not. Early childhood education is not being serviced properly for many children, um, right. especially in urban environments. Yeah. And if I had $200 to spend on supplies for the year, that might speak to what I deem like, okay, what's most important, right? right. I need pencils, right? right? I need paper. I need, you know, there are things that might be important than a whole new library of books. Exactly. And exactly. so, you know, just realizing that also some teachers are in that position or, or feel like, you know, there is this sort of con constrict on their ability to provide these spaces. But I guess I just wanted you to share sort of some of the things that you are seeing in, in the classrooms now that you've sort of been hopping around and, and just sort of been able to sort of moonlight in all these different age levels and really get to see it all in a way that we may not. Well, I, I think one thing that's alarming is the use of tech um, in classrooms now because there is an extreme teacher shortage. Um, on any given day, I'm here, you know, I, I started in New York. Um, I'm now here in Philadelphia. These are high urban areas. On any given day, you will have over 900 um, positions for, on one day for schools looking for teachers. So Substitute teachers? Or substitute would you teachers. Like permanent teachers. There are schools that have, had student, that have not had a permanent teacher in a classroom wow. since the beginning of the school year. Wow. So... Think about that and how children bond with their teacher, you know, at the beginning of the year and the tone that sets because, you know, students, it, it's it's a, such a strange relationship, but they bond very strongly with that person who they see as their teacher. Now, they're not having that from the beginning of the school year. And you think about how that affects their ability to learn, right? And the quality of work, education that they're getting. But in the early grades, there's been a really high focus on tech. So I'm seeing environments where teachers are not even reading books to the children. All of the reading is being done 
by watching something on on the screen. So yes, even physical, you know, activity, they're not going outside, they're doing indoor brain breaks. So there's always tech on. It goes against studies that have shown that children should not be exposed to technology on such high level for their proper brain development, right? Absolutely. Um, Early childhood is considered from two to eight, right? So we're going from preschool all the way up to third grade. It's, it's early childhood, according to most developmental psychologists. So if schools are not honoring that in regards to how they are doing the work with children, we really have to think about that impact. So that is one of the most disturbing things that I'm seeing as I'm subbing around and looking at different environments is the high use of tech in early childhood education. There are no centers. When they have downtime, they're on computers. They're on the iPad. And How many iPads or computers in this cl- in classroom? Every child has an iPad. In most schools that I go into, every child has an iPad. They may not have a library, but they have an iPad. <laughs> they may not have books in the classroom, but they have an iPad. And so what has happened is that when schools have been giving, I, I'm assuming, donations, what goes up is a white screen. That's where they're putting the money. And we understand that technology is a necessary uh, you know, tool. It's and a tool. I, yeah. I, yes, a tool. I love yeah. technology, but technology does not replace human teaching. Technology does not replace a good educator. And especially in the early grades, technology should be extremely limited because the children need to use their senses to learn, you know? Absolutely. And so because of that, you are seeing a slower development in their critical thinking, in their speech development, and in their social, emotional capabilities to interact with each other because they're not even being taught that with programs. Like you're seeing, I'm in classroom, they don't even have a meeting area where they come and sit in a circle. Like a rug area. Like Nothing. A, like a, okay. They don't even have that. That's not even a part of their morning routine. Or considered best practice. Or considered best practice. Community building, you know, which is the basis for early learning. Children being able to look at each other and say, hey, how are you? What's up? How, you know, how are you feeling? You know, share something. Like there, there are teachers that don't even practice that. And I don't throw teachers under the bus, but... Who is not teaching them that? Where is the leadership in regards to building those environments? Someone has to show you how. Right. And they're not being shown how. And I think, yeah, those are just some of the very, very concerning things that I've been seeing as I've been moving around in different learning environments in the public sector. Wow. And so you created Creative Rigor. And if you are interested, Nicola, you know, is available to be hired to come to your school to maybe look at what can be improved or just to inspire your practice. But yeah, that I mean, I feel like so many of our conversations, sometimes you'll say something and I'll be like, what? Like, are you serious? Like, it feels so foreign. But I do think we need to hear all sides of the coin, you know, and I'm sure that there's even more to it than this with all that's going on in the world. Yes, yes. And I mean, for for teachers, I mean, I've loved I've listened to your podcast and I've watched, you know, the workshops on uh, fairy dust teaching. 
Yes. And they're just, I mean, just beautiful. And I feel like you said, like for most teachers in the private sector that don't get to interact with the public sector, that it's important for them to find spaces to go out. And if they can, ask their um, leaders to allow them to go out and, and observe. And, yeah. and also, if possible, for private schools to start partnership with public um, institutions to see how they may support and influence them into more child-centered practices. That um, would be amazing. Yeah. I mean, I even know just firsthand some of the stuff that we, you know, each year, you know, when we throw away stuff having um, schools partnering in some of those, like that would make such an impact. Yes. Yes. I think that would be a space for, you know, private institutions to be ambassadors because, you know, it, it just all children should have quality learning environments, you know, and these are the children that we're pushing out into the world. Yes. The future. The future, you know, whether they're private or public, they're going to interact, you know, and they're going to play some part in our culture and our society. And what do we want that to look like? Wow. So this has been very meaningful. And I just want to thank you for just being so real and, and vulnerable. And yeah, I've been wanting you to have this talk with me for a while now. <laughs> so I'm so glad much. we got a chance to do it. Yes, thank you so much for having me. And as you said, I literally just created, uh, Lynette knows I'm just very small digital footprint, but I did create Creative Rigor just up on Instagram. I welcome your conversation or your ideas, your experiences, just, you know, to share it there. Yeah. And moving forward, if you'd like to have further conversations, I'm absolutely open to that. And it's been a pleasure, a pleasure to share with you. All right. Well, thank you for being on The Powerful Pedagogy. Powerful, 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 powerful